If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24. So, staying grounded, guarding your heart, trusting your guide. I, I don't, those are really good words um, for graduates, but I don't think that they're only for graduates. I think those are some pretty good words for all of us in this room to remember those things, to, to, to place our confidence in, in Jesus Christ. And so I know of really no better way to do that than, than to, to, to really dive into God's Word because God's Word is the very thing that will help us to remain grounded in the faith that we have confessed and that we have attached ourselves to. It is the very thing that will set up the, the guardrails in our life to keep us from running off the road, one of the things that I like to use is, a, is I'm not much of a bowler, but I, I love the idea of a bowling alley and a bowling lane, particularly because those lanes, when, when you take your kids, your small kids, you know what they do at the bowling alley? They, they, they put those bumper guards over the gutters, right? So that when the kids bowl, not every ball, because they know the ball are just going to go into the gutter. So they put these bumper guards out there so that the ball doesn't go in the gutter. Let me tell you what God's Word does that for us. God's Word provides us with the gutter guards so that it keeps us from, from, from running afoul and from getting off course so that as, as the Lord pushes us down the lane, we're able to accomplish what He wants us to accomplish. We're able to be effective in that. So, so staying grounded and guarding your hearts is incredibly important, not just for high school graduates, but for all of us. And then trusting our guide. Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to guide us, to to lead us. And, and how does He primarily do that? Well, He does it through His Word. He does it through regularly studying His Word and, 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 and really immersing ourselves in it so that we can understand what it is that God would want and how He would want us to live our lives. So that's why we do what we do here at Ivy Creek, and it's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to immerse ourselves in God's Word, and I want us to do it by looking at Matthew chapter Six And so uh, I'm going to take a text that, that's going to introduce for us something that's probably a little bit, maybe a little uncomfortable, uh, maybe a little bit weird to talk about money, possessions, and idolatry on a morning in which we have graduates that we are celebrating. But you know what? We live in a world that pushes that on us all the time, that our main goal in life is to go out and, and make tons of money and buy tons of things for ourselves and have all of these things that we feed ourselves with. That's the, that's the, the mantra of the world, is that everything in, in Jesus takes a different tact. Jesus comes and says, if you want to stay grounded, if you want to guard your heart, if you want to trust your guide, hear the words of Christ. Let's begin there in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If the lamp of the body is the eye, then if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or 
He will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for how you love us. And we are grateful for the opportunity that you've afforded us this morning to be able to come and open our scriptures and lay them in our lap and be able to read them and then to be able to just spend some time thinking very seriously about the things that you would say to us. Now, I pray that we would be open and receptive to that, that we would be able to have tender hearts and open ears to the movement and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives this morning. We pray this thing in Christ's name. Amen. You know, a lot of times we think of, we probably think of idolatry as something that's an Old Testament thing. It happened back in the Old Testament. Back in our minds, we probably think of, of idol worship as when people were bowing down before some sort of carved idol that they had created. We, we think about, you know, the, the, the calves and the things that were created that people were, bowed down and worshiped. We don't always think about it in the New Testament context. We, always don't, we don't always just initially jump and say, well, that's something that happens today. But here's what I would say. Uh, idols and idolatry are not just Old Testament words that affected ancient people. The scriptures are pretty clear about the fact that there still goes on today. And what I would say to you is simply this. An idol, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God is. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart or, or consumes your imagination more than God does. An idol, an idol is really thing, anything that you think can give you what only God can give you. And that really tells us a little bit about what we're going to be studying this morning. You see, in this passage that I just read for you, you'll notice that it's a cautionary passage. It's a passage that warns It's Jesus talking about something in order to warn us, in order to, to, to move us from maybe a, a thought's that, that are going in one direction. He's wanting to change our opinions or our thoughts about it. And he goes about it by saying, look, you've got two choices in front of you and how you're going to live your life. You've got two, two things that you can approach. The first, the first approach is, is simply this. This is your first choice. You can, you can spend your life storing up for yourself treasures here on earth that are temporary and, and they're transitory. They are, they're they're temporary and transitory in the fact that Jesus says they can become moth-eaten or they can rust and, and, and just you know, go away from that perspective or somebody can come and steal those things from you. In that regard, you can pursue that kind of treasure hunting in your life that will either be eaten by moths or rust or, or be stolen. But he says that's really not a very good option. It's not a good option because that kind of treasure hunting only ends up being an unwise investment because those treasures are not safe. They're not secure. They're not permanent. The other option, however, is to store up for yourself treasures in a different place, in heaven. Jesus reminds us that the treasures that we store up there, they will never corrode. They, they will never be eaten by moss and no one will ever steal them. I, I, I thought it was so interesting. You know, in heaven there will be no mothballs. In heaven there is no need for rust-oleum paint. There will be no padlocks in heaven. You won't need to chain anything up to keep somebody out from stealing things from you. The question is, though, so if that is the case, how do we, 
how do we store up treasures there? If that's the ideal way for us to live our lives, how do we store up treasures there? Well, according to what the Scriptures teach us, we're able to take wealth, we're able to take the good things that God blesses us with in this life, and we're able to convert those things into heavenly treasure by using those things as a means to help us advance the gospel. In other words, we have the ability to take the things that we treasure here on earth, things which if we store them up, we're only eventually going to lose them, and instead we, we use those things and convert them into treasures that can be stored in heaven where they will remain intact for eternity. Now this is what the Apostle Paul says. He, he writes it this way when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Paul tells Timothy, he says, Look, when you're pastoring the people that you pastor, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You realize that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's James, but that's every good thing that has ever come into your life ultimately came from the hands of the Father. He is the giver of every good, perfect gift. Paul, Paul agrees with that. And he says, don't, but don't trust in those things. He says, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, listen, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. You see what Paul says there? He says that if you've been blessed with riches and if you've been blessed with good things, then use those things in such a way in this world that you build up a balance for yourself in the world to come. Now that message, I believe, dovetails very nicely with what Jesus says here in His Sermon on the Mount. You see, Jesus tells us that though earthly wealth and possessions will eventually fail, that does not mean that they are useless. No. No. In fact, Jesus suggests that even though their value is temporal, our earthly wealth can be leveraged and we can store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Now, if we looked at verses 19 and 20, we could really summarize them this way. In verse 19, Jesus says, one day our money and our wealth and our possessions will be useless to us. That's bad news for most of us who have spent a long time trying to acquire them. But one day they will be useless to us. Verse 20, though, says, while their usefulness remains, we should be shrewd and we should be wise and we should be tactical in how we use them for eternal good. Now, he's clearly communicated that choice to us, and then he, in verse 21, he gives us the underlying principle for why this is such an important thing for us. In verse 21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is what I believe is the key to understanding, not just the choice that he presents for us in verses 19 through 20. I think it's the underlying choice for the rest of everything he says in this chapter. And this is what I want to... I put it this way for you. It's the first point on your outline this morning. How I've described it is this way. The compass needle of your heart always points to where your treasure is held. The compass needle of your heart always, always, always points to where your treasure is held. If you take a, a compass and you look at it, it's going to point to true north. At least one that's not broke, Will. I had one the other day. It was broke. didn't do any good. wasn't pointing to anything. But a good one is going to point, and you can move around the house, and that needle will kind of... But eventually, it'll land pointing to true north. You realize the same thing is about your heart? 
You can move around your life and do all sorts of things and that needle is going to swing, but eventually that compass needle is going to point toward the very things that you value most. The question is, where is your heart pointing? Kent Hughes in his commentary advises that if we really want to know where the needle of our heart is pointing, we've got to ask ourselves some hard questions. Hard questions like this, what occupies my thoughts most? My investments, my position in life, something I wish I had but I don't. What is it that I fret about the most? What causes me the most angst when I think about it? Is it my home, my possessions? What or whom do I dread losing most? What are the things that I measure other people by? Is it their clothing, the car they drive, the house they live in, the job they have, the success, their, their physical abilities? What, what is it? Those kind of things point you to where your treasure lies. And lastly, the question is, what is it that I know I cannot be happy without? That's a good question. What, what do I know that I cannot be happy without? Those kind of questions give a clear indication as to where the needle of your heart Points. And I want you to know the world around you is going to tell you all kinds of things that your heart needs to be pointing this direction. But this is why the Scriptures are here, to give us direction and to provide those, those guards, those safeguards that help us to understand where our heart should be pointed. And I want you to know, unapologetically this morning, I want you to know where your heart should be pointing. I want you to know where your treasure ought to be. Your treasure ought to be in no one and in nothing other than Jesus Christ. That is where the heart, your needle of your heart ought to be pointing. He is our very rich treasure. Jesus began His Sermon on the Mount with, with the Beatitudes. You may have heard that. The, the Beatitudes and the very first Beatitude that Jesus said was this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, Jesus starts His sermon by saying, Blessed are you if you realize you're bankrupt. Blessed are you if you are completely without hope and without God. You want to know why? Because if you really come to recognize your spiritual poverty, and if you recognize that you're a spiritual zero without Jesus, but then you humble yourself before Him and reach out to Him, He promises, you know what He says? Those people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives you everything when you open yourself up to Him being your only thing. That's how, that's how God works. He works that way. And I want you to know that thread weaves itself throughout all of Scripture. Psalm 63 verse 1 says this, O God, You are my God. Early I will seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. You hear the, you hear the desire of the heart of that one there to want nothing more than God. Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. When, when you truly come to understand who you are, and when you come to understand what's in store for you apart from 
the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you will begin to realize that there is nothing in this world and there is nothing in the world to come that is more valuable to you than Jesus Christ is. And therefore, in light of this salvation that Christ offers us and in light of the future that we face apart from Him, then how could we ever value the things that He gives us more than the one who gave them to us? How, do, how does stuff become more important than the one who gives us that stuff? So I appeal to you today, unapologetically, I appeal to you to examine where the needle of your heart is pointing. And I also appeal to you to turn your focus and your eyes upon Jesus, who alone will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. In fact, that's what Jesus does. Appropriately enough, he, he moves, he switches metaphors. He's talked about the compass needle of our heart in verses 19 through 21, but then beginning in verse 22, he starts talking about the focus of our eyes. And really, he, he just brings out the same point, but from a different angle. Notice what he says. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, there's a direct connection with what Jesus says here and, and what He said in the previous verses. In this case, the eye takes the place of the heart and, and, and we see things from this different angle. Fixing the eye and, and really... Fixing the heart amount to the same thing. Focusing our attention and concentrating all of our energies on something. And, and, and what Jesus does is, is that the eyes are like a, a, a window that allows light into the body. And that's what our eyes are. They allow light to come into our, into our bodies. But only if we're focused our eyes on the proper source. If we're looking at the right thing, then that light will come in. But if we're looking and focusing our attention on the wrong thing, and darkness comes in. And how great is that darkness, Jesus says. And so I've stated the second point this way for you, based upon what Jesus says here. The second point on your outline is this. The focus of our eyes, or excuse me, the focus of the eyes of your heart will either bring light into your life or cause you to be consumed with darkness. That's really what Jesus is saying here. And this is an incredibly important concept because Paul Tripp puts it this way in his book about money. He says, the eyes of your heart are always envisioning something. They're always fixed and focused on some hope or some dream, something of value that you're after. What the eyes of your heart envision will shape the way your physical eyes or what they look for and what they notice. And so we, we probably ought to ask ourselves some similar questions to the ones we asked ourselves earlier. Like, what is the treasure or what is the dream that shapes the way that I see my world? What physical things get my attention which ultimately expose what my heart's longing for? Have you ever thought about that? You ever, you ever thought about, I'm going to look for this, this kind of, it's just an example. If you're, if you're looking to buy a certain vehicle and you never really thought about that vehicle before, but suddenly you begin thinking about, well, I believe I want this type of vehicle or that. Do you know how many of those you start seeing on the road? It's like you never saw them before, but suddenly you see them. Why? Because that which you're focused on becomes what you're looking for. You're, you're actively, that's the same thing that Jesus is telling us here. The physical things that I'm looking for really reveal what my heart's longing for. 
The next question will be, how has your way of seeing your world, how has that caused you to become discontent? How has it caused you to become envious or driven in a way that goes counter to what God would want for you in your life because your eyes are focused in the wrong direction? See, what we can't miss here is that Jesus is telling us that the treasures of our hearts will always shape the way that we see the world around us. And it's that underlying truth that leads us to this bomb that he drops on us there in verse 24. You see, he's building a case, and he gets to the case he really wants us to see in verse 24. Because in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, what Jesus is saying is, he's not going to allow us to be comfortable to go through life occasionally having a good, heavenly-focused, Christ-centered eye, but then sometimes we drift off over here and we have a a more earthly-centered and possession-driven eye. He's not going to allow us to be comfortable living a world like that. He is warning us in this passage, and this warning does not allow us to live our lives in the light, but also living part of our lives in the darkness. I love this old African proverb. It says this, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. (laughs) Jesus says it's much worse than that. Jesus says that you and I cannot walk two roads simultaneously. Some of you out there have done this. Some of you may be doing it right now. You've worked two jobs. You've, You've gone to work in the morning. You've punched a clock, worked for one Boss, you've left that job, went by, grabbed you something quick to eat, and went into a second job, punched the clock, and you work for somebody else in the evening. I've done that before. I'm sure that there's many of you who have done that. That may be a, a, a decent arrangement that works quite well as it pertains to employment, but what I want you to know, that can never, ever, ever be the case between a master and a slave that Jesus talks about here. It's impossible. You see, that is why Christianity and the message of the gospel is such a radical thing. It causes so many people to trip up. In fact, many wonder why making a choice regarding whether they put their faith and their allegiance in Christ is so critically important. Why do I have to choose one or the other? Why can't I just sort of put a little bit of my chips in over here on this option and a little bit of my chips in on this option and a few of my chips over here on this option? Why can't I just have this sort of plethora of options available to me Why is Jesus and why is Christianity, why is it so exclusive? Well, at least part of the reason is why Jesus says what He does here. He says the human heart doesn't have the capacity to serve two masters at the same time. Jesus puts it this way, if you love one, you'll end up hating the other. If you serve this one, you'll end up despising this one and ignoring it. Loving God and loving money and possessions are two mutually exclusive concepts. And any time we attempt to blend those things together, it's called syncretism. And the Lord will not allow it. Kent Hughes writes this, he says, In the final analysis, there is nothing so insulting to God as to say we are serving Him, but then to show by our lives that we are serving mammon. You see, God, the God of the Bible is unwilling to share His glory with another. 
The God of the Bible is unwilling to allow His, His fame and His glory to be shared. Listen to what he writes. and Listen to what, what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul and with all of your strength. He did not say, give me some of it some of the time. It is all of it all of the time. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. These words will be familiar. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? Because God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He does not share, not His glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Jesus actually tells us something very similar in the New Testament. He's preaching about, the, he's using parables to teach us. And, and, and he gets in Matthew chapter 13 and he teaches about the parable of the soils. And he talks about this one particular seed that was spread out there. And we learned that that seed that fell among thorns. And he said this seed is, is really characterized by believers who are folks who profess to be believers and followers of Christ. But then he says that such folks hear the word and they make a response to it. But later... Jesus says the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And the seed becomes unfruitful. And the point is this, for a while, a person can try to walk down two roads at the same time. But soon that person discovers that those roads are two distinctly different paths that ultimately lead to two distinctly different destinations and you cannot walk down both of them simultaneously. And the message of Scripture is clear. God demands our single-minded devotion. We cannot ride the fence. We cannot simultaneously hold hands with God and hold hands with the world. John tells us in 1 John 2, Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So as we begin to understand this, what we get to is we always will prefer one over the other. We will ultimately have to choose between them because they both make total demands upon us. That leads me to the last statement that I want you to see from your outline this morning. And it's really a summary of what we've just discussed. And that is this, the compass needle in the eyes of your heart cannot simultaneously point toward Christ and materialism. They cannot. Craig Blomberg has written it this way. He said, it is arguable that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today. And what that means is that with regard to what Jesus tells us here, the stakes could not be any higher for every single one of us in this room. He's alerting us 
And he is warning us about this great spiritual war that is somehow and in some way being fought on the battlefield of every single heart. And it is the battle between two kings and two kingdoms. And this war demands that we choose which side we're going to be on. As one has put it, this world is comfortable with dallying with Christianity, but Christ will not accept it. He forces us to choose, just as Joshua forced the children of Israel to choose in his day. Choose you this day whom you will serve. So what does that mean? How are we to do that? I mean, it's one thing to talk about this in theory, but let's deal with it in reality. How are we supposed to live our lives? How are we supposed to have jobs? How are we supposed to, to, to buy houses? How are we supposed to, to, to earn an income and not succumb to the seduction that money and materialism are constantly weighing on us? How do we ensure that we don't unseat God from His rightful throne in our lives and begin worshiping and becoming a slave to our money and our possessions? Well, the first thing that I think we must remember is this. We have to recognize that our possessions and our money and our wealth and our ambition, all of those things are wonderful, beautiful gifts that God has given to us. He is the one who gives them to us but He doesn't give them to us to hold on to with such tight hands that we're never willing to free them up to be used for God's benefit and His glory. We have to remember that. We cannot become so enamored with the gift that we lose sight of the One who gave it to us. It starts there. It starts by recognizing that that which we own should never own us. Because it first came from God. There's the first step. The second step comes this way. It involves what we're doing right now. And it necessarily involves us doing this on our own regularly throughout the week and throughout our lives. And that is we preach the gospel to ourselves. You see, the gospel is not just for those out there who have never heard of Christ. It is for those out there who have never heard from Christ. But brothers and sisters, if you've never learned anything under my preaching, I want you to know the gospel is for us. It's the gospel, and it's always the gospel, Todd Bevel. It is always the gospel. It never goes anywhere. It's always the gospel that comes back to. We have to preach to ourselves the fact that we were the hopelessly broken and completely helpless sinner who had nothing on our own but God in His rich mercy sent His Son to come and to die on a cross to save us from the guilt of our sin that we have rightly earned His punishment. But He took that punishment upon Himself. He stretched out on a cross and gave His life in our place. He died on that cross, was put in a tomb, but He rose victoriously on the third day and He now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me and we have this great hope and this great treasure that one day, one day when we either depart this life through natural means or He returns, we will one day be with Him in glory. That is the gospel. And what you need to remind yourself is that it is always going to be the gospel that brings you and centers you back on what is the most important thing in your life. You can chase all of the rest of the stuff that's out there. But none of that stuff can offer you and will deliver to you what Jesus Christ offers and delivers.
That's the first and the second. The third is simply this. Daily, daily we have to order our priorities in such a way so that we give our love and our single-minded devotion to Jesus. Our priorities will reflect where our affections are. And our affections will be reflected in our actions. And therefore, we have to be careful. We have to, we have to look and see, what is it I'm being motivated by? What is it that I'm doing? And what, how is it that I'm spending my time? And how is it that I'm spending, where's my thoughts going? And what is my energy being devoted to? And how about my emotions? What is driving those things? And what about the desires that I have? And, and what about my ambitions? And yes, where do I spend my money? What am I willing to give up? What am I willing to sacrifice? How am I willing to support the kingdom advancement of the gospel? All of those things have to be constantly thought through and evaluated based upon what Scripture reveals. We have no other option but to do that because our actions and our emotions and our movement all give credibility as to where our heart is pointing and where our eyes are focused. As one has stated this way, kingdom citizens have but one master, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord, and to him belongs our all. That leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. The life of a true Christian is characterized by treasuring, worshiping, and serving the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly and refusing to be ruled by money and possessions. Let me ask you this morning, is that your testimony? Is that your personal testimony? Is your heart and your eyes and your service focused on Christ? Are you being ruled by Him? Is He your King of kings and Lord of lords? I want you to know unequivocally this morning, I'm telling you, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The question that you have to ask is, do I recognize Him as such and am I serving Him as such? Unfortunately, there are many in our world today and there may be even some in this room who may be confused as to where their, who their master is. They give lip service to the king of kings, but their daily lives are spent paying homage to their possessions and to their, their pursuit of more. They live bifurcated lives. They live lives that are attempting to walk down the two paths at the same time. They're attempting to hold hands with God and hold hands with the world. And as we've seen this morning, it simply cannot happen. The simple truth that Jesus presents to us is that no one can become a slave to earthly treasure and worship it without proving oneself to be a traitor to God. And the opposite is equally true. No one can truly worship and serve God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and be enslaved by money. And that is why Jesus tells us to be careful. It's why He tells us to watch out. It's why He tells us to guard our hearts. It's why He tells us to stay grounded in the Word. And it's why He tells us to follow Him and to trust Him as our guide. And the question that we have to say this, ask ourselves this morning is where is my heart and where is my treasure? And I want you to know God reaches out to you today and asks you, begs you, and pleads with you according to Scripture, choose you this day whom you will serve. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy. We thank you that you're a God that loved us enough that in our completely inept, broken, poverty-stricken state, you sent your son to die for us, to give us what we could never earn and what we could never gain on our own. And the greatest thing that could ever happen to us is that you would save us. We are indebted to you for eternity because of that, but you, you treat us not as, as that one that is, is a slave to you that, that you care nothing about. No, you lavish upon us good things and wonderful things and promise us eternity with you. And so my prayer is, is there one there this morning that doesn't know you in that way? They've never trusted you. They're still trying to just figure things out on their own. That today, through the working of your Holy Spirit, through your word, you'd bring conviction into their lives. And that they would place their complete, total confidence and faith in you. And Lord, for many of us, that is our testimony. But if we're honest with ourselves... Our lives don't always back that up. The truth is we're chasing after other things. Sometimes those other things become far more important to us than you. My prayer is today that your convicting Holy Spirit might help us to see the changes that need to be made in our lives, that we would repent and that we would turn from those things, acknowledging you as our sovereign Lord and our Master. My prayer is as we leave this place that our lives would be changed by the power of the gospel. And we will praise you forever and ever because of that. In Christ's name, amen.